Hey everyone, welcome to our Strong Mind, Strong Body podcast. I'm your host, Angie Miller, and today we are going to talk about how small habits lead to big results. And I think there's no better time to talk about habit change and behavior change and the power of creating good habits than at the beginning of a new year. So I have a very special guest. His name is Bobby Cappuccino. I absolutely love that last name. It's like, I'm going to go to Starbucks. And Bobby is a speaker and a coach. He's also the host of his own podcast called The Self-Help Antidote. And what I thought about Bobby for this, uh, this particular episode is because I saw him speak in Bangkok. And he is an amazing speaker. He's motivational. He's funny. He's got great stories. So Bobby, I'm going to bring you on and have you introduce yourself. Hi, Angie. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you here. Good to have you. So I think, Bobby, you're in California, right? I'm in California. All Long right. Beach, What's that? I think that's LA County. I think it's the furthest southern tip of LA. Anyway. <laughs> you're you're there. You're where it's I'm sunny. Here. All right. So, Bobby, we're going to talk about habits. And I know that this is, you know, I've heard you speak about habits. And I feel like you are a master at this. You've done so many presentations. And I feel like that habits are such a foundational element of helping people get into positive behavior change patterns. And, you know, small habits truly do lead to big behavior change. And we sometimes don't even recognize the power of the little daily nuances. And so what do you think as far as um, what coaches need to understand about habits to even start on this journey and working with our clients, not just about how to create good habits, but how to get clients to actually engage in them. Well, we know when you talk about coaching, Jeffrey Swartz, the brain researcher, defines coaching as the facilitation of neuroplasticity, which needs a little bit of unpacking. What does that mean? And how does that connect us to what's most important to our clients? I, I think a good way to frame that is when you talk about neuroplasticity, it's identifying what are the behaviors that facilitate the changes in the brain, that facilitate the formation of habits that make the changes that are most important to you, most connected to what it is you wanna be, have and do sustainable. And, and I think when it comes to sustainable change, it's understanding what the role of a coach is compared to how trainers traditionally reframe themselves. So trainers live in three domains, basically. They live in the domain of instruction, we live in the domain of training, and we live in the domain of coaching where instruction is, in NASM terms, where you're bridging the gap through cues and information right there on the spot between knowledge of results and knowledge of performance. In other words, what it is that you ideally want to have happen, example in this case would be an execution of a movement pattern and what's actually happening. So by going through multi-century cues and establishing your client's learning style, you're able to bridge that gap right there in real time based on observation and communication, declarative communication. I'll explain that a little bit later. The second domain is teaching. Teaching is something where I'm not necessarily with you at the time. I'm giving you information. Let's say on healthy eating habits. 
And then you're going to go away and apply that information. You're not going to eat in front. Well, I hope you don't eat in front of me, but you're not going to eat in front of me. You're going to apply that comeback self-report and we're going to pick up from wherever you self-reported and continue your journey. Coaching's a little bit different. Coaching's not necessarily a matter of what you put in. It's a matter of what you're able to draw out. Coaching deals with autonomy. It deals with values. It deals with what are the intrinsic factors that facilitate change. Now, when you're looking at behavior change, there's a lot of different domains. There's the neurobiological. There, You have to look at uh, endocrinology. You have to look at psychology, epigenetics. But I'm just going to talk about three domains that are particularly relevant to coaching, and that is teleology, identity, and environment. Teleology is the study of meaning. We are meaning-seeking organisms. If we can identify what's most meaningful to an individual and we're able to attach specific strategies and behaviors to that thing, we're much more likely to elicit behavior change than focusing on goals in the absence of who I am and what I truly deeply want. Because a goal is a means to an end. It's not the end result in and of itself. So I'm, I might have a goal of financial independence, however that shows up, but what I really want is freedom and security for my family. Identity is who and Hold what- Hold on, Bobby, can I interject here for a minute? I'm sorry. So no, you're perfect. I wanna unpack that a little bit because I feel like you're one of those people who drops all these golden nuggets. And I wanna make sure that I kind of stay with you and unpack this a little bit. First of all, I love what you said about what coaching is and isn't. And I think the biggest takeaway is that is that coaching is not what you necessarily put in, but coaching is what you can draw out of a person. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same way with being a clinician is that when I work with clients, what can I draw out of them? And to me, that's so strengths-based. What are their strengths and what do they have? What's their capacity? And then you're saying teleology is so much based on purpose, right? It's mm -hmm. it's what is my purpose and my my vision and my ultimate foundation of what makes me want to put my feet on the floor. Was that a good synopsis? <laughs> that was a brilliant synopsis. I think you said it better than I did. I just want to touch upon purpose for a second because a lot of times when we're working with people on purpose and even in our own lives, people say almost apologetically, I don't know what my purpose is. You do, actually. You know what your purpose is. I think the problem is how we frame and how we define purpose. When you live your highest values and you go out and you express those values in the world, it's going to have an impact on people. And some of those people who are touched by the expression of you living your highest values are going to find that it contributes to them as well as you in a meaningful way. When that point of contribution is made, you're living your purpose. So purpose is the bridge between meaning and action. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's very important because what actions would allow you to live your highest values or what's most meaningful to you as a way of discovering what are the intrinsic motivational drivers that, 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 that evokes those behaviors long enough to create the changes in the brain yeah. that support and habit formation, that supports sustainability. Well, and I, I, I like that analogy of a bridge because 
what, you know, the two sides of the bridge, you've got your purpose, but what kind of action are you going to take to live that purpose? Because I'm with you. I think we all do have a purpose, but I think we sometimes feel paralyzed. Like what is my actual purpose? But I, I like what you're saying that once you get in touch with how do you impact people? How do you show up for people? Where do you shine your light? It's like, I remember a friend of mine saying years ago, if you have a gift, wouldn't it be a shame not to share it with the world? And I often think that it's not even so much of defining purpose that clients have a hard time with, but also what action steps can I take to realize that purpose and make meaningful change in not only my life, but the lives of people around me? What do you think? No, I, I, I think that there's a certain hierarchy in discovery. You know, most times, if you, here's the thing. We all have something that we deeply value. But what blocks us is if you ask people, well, what do you value most? They give you vague ambiguities rather than meaningful specifics. Or they'll tell you what they absolutely don't want or what they don't value. Or they'll give you a social contract. Like you'll ask somebody, well, what's, what's your highest value? Well, honesty and integrity. It's like, well, what other options were you actually considering? That's not a value. Those are social contracts. There's certain agreements that we need within our society to have a society that functions well and works, not for everybody, but for most people, for the greatest number of people that society can work for. And, and things like honesty and integrity is part of that. People say, well, I value my family. I'm not saying you don't value your family, but one of the questions I would ask is, did you know you wanted a family before you had a family? And if the answer is, well, why? When you imagine having a family, what were the things that you, you wanted to, I'll give you a perfect example. So I was at a leadership retreat for an organization that I worked with and the presenters, the consultants we brought in the day before were talking about keeping your word and being absolutely on time, no excuses. So they said, tomorrow we start at eight o'clock in the morning. That means by 7.50, you're in the room. So 7.50 shows up and we're all there, 755. There's a seat that's empty and the seat is, is supposed to be occupied by a very good friend of mine who was a senior vice president at the time. Well, eight o'clock comes, 805, now everybody in the room is there. So we notice there's this one seat missing. At a quarter past eight, he rocks up and the consultant says, no, 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 don't take your seat. Explain to the room why you broke your promise to your colleagues. Oof. That's, that's a tough situation to be in. We all cringe. Nobody wants to be that person. And he said, well, you know what? I made the decision because this morning, as I was leaving my house, my son was on his bicycle and he rode without any training wheels for the first time ever. And I knew I had a choice at that point. Uh, I can miss a once in a lifetime opportunity with my kid or... I could violate my promise. I chose to violate my promise. I'll make it up to you later. And the consultant said, that's an example of how values drive behaviors and decisions. He said, what was so important to you about that? And, and my friend shares my wife's highest values, which is just try a sense of adventure. Like when you go out and you explore something and that first time wonder and discovery that you were allowed to experience because you gave yourself permission through trying something that you weren't sure whether or not it would be possible for you. That's the value that having a family 
creates the environment to express. Does that make sense? Yeah, it actually really does. And I love that story because I think stories give us context. Bobby, I want to reintroduce you. So we are talking about how small habits lead to big change. My name is Angie Miller. This is Strong Mind, Strong Body. And I'm talking to Bobby Cappuccio, whose name, by the way, I said Cappuccino. And Bobby is too nice of a guy to correct me. I think in my mind, I want your name to be Cappuccino, but it's actually Cappuccio. Well, it wasn't high school. <laughs> Excuse me, but because you're such a nice guy, you didn't correct me. So, you know, it actually does make sense. And I, I have another question about, you know, just habits in general. And as we coach our clients toward that, one of the things that I heard you talk about is that our culture and our vision kind of informs the behaviors that bridge where we are today and where we want to be. And you say that habits are what make behavior sustainable. And, um, but what creates habit and you have some things that you talk about like cueing and ritual and reward what does actually create habit when we get down to the brass tacks what do you teach your clients about how to create habit well that's that's the reason why we started with teleology the first thing is meaning it, it, it think about something before i answer that, that you absolutely hate if you're listening to this right now like let's say knitting, where some people love knitting. You might hate that. The idea of learning how to knit, sitting down for hours on end knitting is torture to you. How sustainable do you think that behavior is going to be? Whether you listen to a podcast about discipline, work ethic, you read motivational books, go to motivational seminars, how long do you think you're going to be able to sustain the behaviors to develop a high level of proficiency in knitting? And unless your family is absolutely dependent on you becoming proficient at knitting, which I don't think is the case for most people, the chances are slim to none versus something that doesn't require any motivation. Like the first time you fell in love, you could have gotten home, been exhausted, lying on the couch, wiped out. That person called you and said, oh, I just happened to be in your neighborhood. You summoned up unprecedented levels of energy, drive, ambition, wit, and you put your coat on, you went out and you had a drink because we don't have to motivate ourselves to nearly the same degree to engage in things that have value where the payoff is in the process, not just the outcome. Once you have that, you clearly identify what behavior am I trying to develop? There's four steps. And the first step to creating a core habit is cues. Uh, uh, back in the 1980s, Benjamin Lay did a study where he took groups of people, hooked them up to an EEG, brain scan, and basically asked them a simple question. Would you raise your right hand? 100% of the people complied. And then he asked them, well, why did you do that? When I asked you to raise your right hand, what made you decide to comply with that? And most of the answers were the same. Well, I signed up for the study and you, know, you bring me into a room and you ask me to raise my right hand. It's not that absurd of a request. So yeah, I thought, why not? But here's what their brains had to say about the matter. What he noticed is there was activity in the premotor cortex prior to the prefrontal lobes. And what that means is their brains decided before they were even consciously aware that they were deciding. Very often what we think are chosen behaviors, and, and this is not a case against self-determinism. This just says that many of the little behaviors that we think we're choosing are preconditioned responses to environmental cues. 
I walk into my house, the first thing I see is my living room, let's say, and off to the side is the fridge. Fridge is a cue. I see a TV and a remote. That's a behavioral cue. So I sit down, I turn on the TV. I'm not even aware that I'm doing it. It's I'm on the history channel. And I'm like, okay, I rationalize just five minutes. And then what? what? Aliens might have built the pyramids. I got to see how this turns out. Next thing you know, I'm sitting in front of the TV for an hour. Was that a choice or was that triggered by an environmental cue? So the Hmm. first thing is what are the environmental cues that support the behaviors that you want most? So what if you had a cupboard where you closed your TV, kind of like those things, and you put a yoga mat on your floor? So the first thing you see when you come in after a hard day of work is a yoga mat, and that's going to create a different stimulus and therefore a different behavioral response than the TV and the remote control. Mm. Another thing is observation. They use this in cognitive behavior therapy and motivational interviewing. There are scales and the scales around habit formation. The the O in core habits, C-O-R-E, stands for observation around importance enjoyment, and confidence. So question number one, on a scale from one to 10, this behavior that I'm going to engage in, how important is this to my long-term goals? So I might decide, let's take something really simple. I'm going to walk for 30 minutes per day, five days per week at 6.15 in the evening after I get home from work. Now, why is this important to me? Well, let's say that, you know, I just got done with the checkup. And my doctor said, you know what? Your cholesterol came back a little bit high. You know, there's a couple of other metabolic factors and you know what? You're pre-diabetic. And let's say mom died at 58, dad died at 54. I'm 55, God's right here. And I want to be around for my kids. Well, that walk is a simple behavior. But when I take a look at what it supports, it might be an eight or a nine or a 10 on importance because of what it supports and the value that it represents. Because of the purpose behind it and the story and the, 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 it ties into not just values, but, but everything that is meaningful to you, there's mom and dad and there's lifestyle and there's longevity and there's, I want to be around for my kids. And yeah, that's, I like that. Angie, that, 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 that's spot on because, okay, I want to lose five kilos, right? Or 11 pounds or what, whatever. If I don't have something deeper attached to that, that's intrinsically driven. So DC and Ryan in self-determination theory, they propose that all behaviors that have longevity, that create adherence, have three things in common. Look at this as an arc of motivation, arc being an acronym, A-R-C. They have to have autonomy. In other words, you're deciding this for your reasons, not because your doctor says so, not because your peer group says so, not because you read it on Instagram, but for your own intrinsic reasons. The second is relatedness. Relatedness to others, support, all things being equal is one of the most powerful drivers of change and related to your values, what's truly important, who and what is most meaningful to you. And the third component is competence. So so we have a misconception that people seek comfort over work, and that's why they don't attain their goals. When you're seeking comfort over action, 
you're probably pursuing something that's not important to you. You're pursuing somebody else's goals. You're acting out a script that someone else has authored. That seems to be the problem. So when you have those three domains of autonomy, relatedness, and competence, you're more likely to sustain the behaviors that are in line with whatever that thing is that you're pursuing. So one is importance first and foremost. The second one is enjoyment. On a scale from one to 10, how much am I going to enjoy this walk? And if, if it's like a five, well, the worst thing to do is ask yourself, well, oh, how come it's not a six or a seven? Because what you're doing is invalidating the level of commitment you already have, number one. Number two, you're missing what's actually there. A better question is to go in reverse. If I say it's a five, well, why did I not say a two? And the space between a two and a five elicits awareness around, well, what would I enjoy? Well, at least I'm getting outside. I like being outside. I'm not so keen on the physical activity. Well, what, after you identify the factors that elicit the response that you stated, what are things you can do to elevate the level of enjoyment? Maybe for some people, I, I have a love of learning. So I'm going to listen to an audiobook. For some people, it's music. For some people, it's like, you know, I think I'm going to try to walk with my spouse. Other people are like, God, I want to get away from my spouse. Well, you might want to walk with someone, not necessarily somebody else's spouse. Remember, this is trying to make your life less, not more complicated. But what are the things that would elevate the level of enjoyment so that activity has a pull versus a push type of motivation? And the third question is, what's my level of confidence? Given my past history. How likely, I'll scale from one to 10, 10, no doubt in my mind, one, mm, I'm not really sure if this is going to work. I, I probably have not a chance in the world of following through on this. What's my confidence in, in executing on the goal that I set for myself? And if well, and you know, I'm sorry. And I'm going to interject here, Bobby, because I want everyone to know, because what you're really doing is using from motivational interviewing the scaling rulers. Mm -hmm. And I've done a couple of segments on using those rulers, and I think they're amazing and they work perfect to your point in this situation on developing positive behavior change and using habits is using those scaling rulers. Because like you said, if if somebody says, or they kind of shame themselves, how come I'm only at a six, but instead it's like, well, you know, how come I'm not at a, at a two and go in reverse and build off of the fact that a six is, is, is really good. And now, like you said, what can you add to that to make it even more enjoyable? I can add an audio book or I can, whatever it is that you can contribute to that, that habit that make it more enjoyable and sustainable. So yeah. You want to work with what you have. Focusing on weaknesses is important. Focusing on problems is important. But what it does is it narrows your focus and scope of possibilities. I mean, it's kind of a, a cheesy example, but if you were being chased by a tiger, what would you see? You would see whatever's right in front of you. You would have tunnel vision. Anything that wasn't necessary in helping you to live, it, so... I'm sorry, anything that wasn't helpful in helping you live and escape that tiger would not be relevant. But when you focus on strengths, when you focus on what's working, when you focus on what you have and what's present rather than what's missing, it expands your scope of possibilities. It elicits creativity, which is important because creativity supports adaptability. And adaptability is the key to any type of transformation. Mm, yeah. 
You know, um, before we move on, Bobby, I want to reintroduce you. This is Bobby Capuccio, and he is the host of the Self-Help Antidote. He's also a speaker and a coach and has amazing insight about lots of topics related to coaching and wellness and fitness. My name is Angie Miller. This is Strong Mind, Strong Body. And we're just talking about how these small habits lead to big change. And Bobby, you brought up so much with self-determination theory, with motivational interviewing, all these different techniques that we can bring in to help our clients really understand what is my purpose and what is my true value and how do I bridge that gap between here's my purpose and here's how I put it into action. And then also talking about the environment and the cues within the environment, because you're spot on. So much of how our environment is set up is exactly what ignites us or pulls us or hijacks our brain to do something that seems to work against what we really want. And so I'm glad that you brought that up about cues in the environment. So the teleology, the environment, what else would you say then that kind of ties in to the whole formation of helping our clients build habits? Specificity is one. We often give vague ambiguities rather than meaningful specifics when identifying what it is we want. So we have the cues. What are the environmental cues that support the behaviors? If I'm going to go for a run in the morning, I might want to leave my shoes by the door. O is the observation around importance, enjoyment, and confidence. Anything, late than, anything other than a level eight confidence, reduce the size of your commitments until it's absolutely innate. It would be ridiculous for you not to follow through. The R is rituals. Rituals is about specificity. And this is important because specificity around rituals, not just what are you going to do, but when are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? For how long? I'm going to, you know, I'm going to walk every day is very different than I'm going to walk for 20 minutes every day at 6 p.m., Monday through Friday, at a rate of perceived exertion of a six to a seven. Do you see the difference? Mm -hmm. Now, now this, this becomes important because one, if I slip up, and we've all had this, where we set a goal, New Year's, New Year's resolutions, New Year, New Me, that doesn't work out for most people. And let's say we start the new year, like we did this Monday, right? Monday rolls around and I start the new year, and day one, I'm amazing. Day two, wow, I really stuck to my plan. Day three, I'm starting to like feel good about myself. I'm starting to feel a little bit cocky, actually. Thursday rolls around and a piece of chocolate cake takes advantage of me. What <laughs> most people do is say, oh, I've blown it. It's an all or nothing. And then they go home and they eat everything that's not moving. The dog is running laps in the living room because he's not taking any chances. And then we start over perpetually on Monday. Well, one of the problems with this is we don't have a way to discern the variables that led to that behavior. It's usually one variable, whether we went out to eat with friends and we weren't anticipating it, whether you know a meeting got shifted. So I didn't get to stick with my plan. But what's interesting is when you have specificity around what you're going to do, who you're going to do it with, where you're going to do it, when you're going to do it, and how you're going to do it. It's not so overwhelming and it doesn't provoke all or nothing thinking to the same degree. As a matter of fact, when you're able to dissect what happened, setbacks 
become single isolated events. It's not a person and they give you information and resources that help you succeed to a greater degree with greater longevity than it would have been possible if you didn't have that setback to begin with. So specificity makes the shift from success and failure to I either succeed or I learn, which is a very different mindset to approach sustainability with. So that's well, and I like that you either, you know, it's, it's not, I either succeed or fail. It's I either succeed or I learn because it is in the setbacks that we recognize where the obstacles and challenges are, but so much of it is not how it set us back, but what we can do next time this hijack happens or that situation happens. It offers more opportunities for humans to flourish in lots of different contexts and to say, again, it's not a setback, but it's a learning experience. And this is good because the more of these that we have in the early stages, the more we can nuance specificity. Absolutely. And specific, here's another thing around specificity. I just want to dive into it a little bit. When you have specificity around multiple variables, it requires more challenge and a little bit more effort, which releases more norepinephrine which facilitates the production of acetylcholine, which facilitates learning and memory. So you're leveraging your biochemistry to help facilitate habit formation a bit more expeditiously. Mm. Like mm. We, we've all heard, my boss used to be fond of saying, I, I just worked with her over the weekend. It's great seeing her again. And she used to talk about things that are so small, like just working off of a list or make your bed first thing in the morning, or clear your desk. And, and that sounds really cheesy. But when you intentionally seek out a small goal to accomplish, let's say making your bed first thing in the morning, what happens is because there was a pre-existing attention around that, and then you completed it, the same reason why working, there are some people that love working off of lists. Some of these people have the same last name. They live in your household. They're just, they have their list for everything. And the reason why that's so gratifying is because it facilitates the release of dopamine from the ventral tegmental area and the reward pathway. Well, another important part of the reward pathway is the nucleus accumbens, specifically the ventral striatum. The ventral striatum deals with anticipation. That combined with activity in the orbital frontal cortex, just making your bed in the morning gives you that reward and it helps you to scan your environment throughout the rest of the day, seeking out opportunities to engage in goal achieving behaviors. So doing something really small and simple in the morning sets, because it's so specific, sets you up for success later on in the day. Habits have a way of overlapping. James Petrasco, who's one of the founders of the uh, trans theoretical model of change, he talks about small habits are powerful because if you accomplish even one small task, your chance of successfully accomplishing other small consecutive tasks over doubles. That's powerful. When we think about a client comes into the gym or, or they sign up with us for whatever type of coaching we're engaging with them around, and we give them 10 things to change while well, we address their smoking, their drinking, their diet, their training, because we're trying to manipulate the variables that we know 
have a long lasting impact on their health. But the problem with that is for a lot of them, it's so overwhelming and it creates such intrinsic conflicts rather focusing on one simple behavior with multiple variables attached to that one behavior to create specificity. If we can help them achieve that, we elevate self-efficacy. And what I mean by self-efficacy is their inward belief and their ability to initiate and perpetuate a series of behaviors that are in line with their desired outcomes. So over time, they can more successfully, if not si not simultaneously, however, achieve all of the things that we're lay helping them lay out as part of their plan, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. And you know, Bobby, it's, it's interesting how... What I love about the when you talk about habits is that you don't just go into the simple, this is a one, two, three plan. You talk about how the brain is involved, how meaning and purpose is involved, and you go deeper into the why, and you use different tools and techniques that help you really connect with your clients and support that they're able to make, that they're able to build and sustain these small habits but it, there's, there's more to it than just talking about let's change habits. Mm -hmm. Bobby, help me with something, can you? So your brain is like a rapid fire. You think so deeply and have so much information to offer. I want to kind of help summarize some of the stuff that you've talked about. So we talked about the small habits that bring about big changes. And one of the things that you talked about, you started with talking about teleology and how that's purpose and values. You went into environment and talked about the cues and the rituals. Is there anything that I missed? We also talked about specificity. Is there anything that I missed if you were to say, okay, coaches, I kind of want to lay it out in a one, two, three, knowing that the one, two, three has a lot of depths and layers. Well, I think we left out reward. One element of core habits is the E, enforce. Enforcing the behavior through reward, it doesn't have to be tangible. Whenever I talk about reward related to fitness, clients always come up with smoothies. It's not about the smoothie. I mean, it can be something tangible, but a lot of times it's writing down or journaling your achievement, what you noticed, what you're most proud of, what you're grateful for, and that creates an intrinsic reward that reinforces the behavior. It could be texting someone who really cares about you and supports you, whether that's your trainer will text me as soon as you complete this behavior every day. And then I respond in a way that's encouraging. I respond in a way that elicits feedback. You know, for me, here, here's just a simple example. We lived in San Diego for a while. And we moved, we moved to a place called Normal Heights. And the reason, one of the reasons why we moved there was because we had everything you could want all on the main strip. It was Adams Avenue. But we lived about a half a mile off of Adams Avenue. So if I wanted to get anything, the rule was no jumping in the car. So you would get a couple of extra miles a day of movement just by going through your normal activities of daily living. So I used to have a ritual where I love a coffee first thing in the morning. It, it just makes sense to me. It sets me up for my day. I can read a book. I can relax. I can learn something. So I would take a walk all the way to the coffee shop. I wouldn't allow myself to have a cup of coffee until I got my reading done. And then I would get a cup of coffee and the coffee would be the reward for the reading and for the movement. And that's how I would close that loop around Q. I went through 
it, it's, it's almost built into me at this point, all of my observational variables in the O, there was a very specific ritual. I did it at a specific time, at specific days of the week for a specific amount of time that I allocated. And the coffee was the reinforcement or the E enforcement that helped to facilitate long-term behavior change. That was a perfect summary. Thank you for that because I couldn't have I couldn't have done it the way that you did it. I like that uh, analogy. Isn't it funny how it's kind of like the small things of why do you look for the closest spot in the parking lot when you can park far away and get extra steps in? So, Bobby Capuccio, thank you so much, and uh, I hope that this you know gives listeners. I think it gave me an excellent habit formation type of of instructional, if you will, understanding the changes that go on in the brain, the value system and everything that ties into habits. It's not as simple as it looks. And yet when it comes right down to it, core values and core habits are everything. So thank you for coming on. Thanks to our Strong Mind, Strong Body listeners. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Yeah.